Church, as you're having a seat, if you will, this is the last time I'm going to say this. Open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We find ourselves uh, on the last week of Ephesians on this Memorial Day uh, weekend. Uh, I want to quickly say happy Memorial Day. I want to honor any veterans we have here. Uh, thank you for your service. Uh, we want to honor those that have fallen. Uh, we want to honor those that have fought for our country, for the freedoms that we have in large part that we can stand up here and proclaim the goodness of Jesus, the life-giving good news of the gospel um, that fought in those wars. And so thank you. We want to honor them. And it's, and it's fitting almost today that we actually find ourselves in a passage that reminds us that the life that we lead even today, though it is a much different battle, though it's not on a battlefield wielding weapons like those that have gone before us to give us the freedoms that we have in America to be able to sing and to open the word, Paul's going to remind us here in Ephesians 6 that our lives are wrapped up in a different battle. And he's going to remind us that we're wrapped up in a spiritual battle. Uh, and we often forget that. We live our lives, we have kind of our, our, our agendas, we have our jobs, we have our activities, we have all the things that we're doing, and they're all sort of operating in this physical reality in the world that we live in. And Paul is going to conclude the, the book of Ephesians, this letter to this church, and he's going to remind us, as God's people, he's going to say, our battle isn't just flesh and blood. It's not just, that's not all it's about, but our battle is in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle. And so he's going to remind us to do something as believers. And so I'm going to read it, and then we're going to jump in, and we're going to con conclude our study in the book of Ephesians, which has been a joy. It's been, uh, I've, I've loved getting to go through this letter together. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, says this. Finally, as he's concluding this book, finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the evil schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, be alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, of which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." We're going to jump in now. We're going to read that last section here at the end. But my hunch is that as we come to this section, if you've grown up in the church at all, this is fairly familiar to you. 
Uh, maybe perhaps you were a child in a uh, maybe VBS or your old, uh, your old Sunday school classes, and this is your felt board moment, right? You've got the whole armor of God, and it goes through all that. Maybe you have memories of that growing up. But I have a hunch that maybe some of you in here, uh, you maybe fall into one of two camps. You, you hear a ver- verses like this. You hear a concluding uh, section of Scripture like this, and some of you love it. You're like, oh yeah, I, I love this stuff. It's like your, probably your favorite movies are like Braveheart or 300 or um, like me, I, just, I memorized Braveheart. I think I watched it like a hundred times in high school and I would just, my friends and I, we would just, we could repeat every single line of that movie. It was like this battle cry, this war cry, something kind of comes alive in you when you talk about this kind of stuff. Or you're like a saving private Ryan, you just... You, you kind of, you're like, man, this, this makes sense to me. This is how I kind of, I can connect the dots here. He's finally getting into our real battle. But then maybe on the other hand, some of you read this, uh, and you don't really like UFC, and you don't like 300, right? And you read this, and you're like, really? It's like, this feels kind of antiquated. It's like a guy in a metal suit, like grabbing a sword. Is this, why is this part in here? It's, it feels a little ridiculous, Maybe it feels a little bit even bizarre to you. Um, you're like, a person dressed up in a metal suit doesn't really communicate to me strength and security. I want maybe an M16 and a fighter jet, not like a tin man here, right? And so maybe it feels old-fashioned to you. You're reading this and you're like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't see how this all goes together. Give me some sniper rifles or a bomber or whatever it is, right? Or maybe you come to this and you don't really think, oh, it's antiquated and it's just sort of old-fashioned. Maybe you come to a passage like this, and if you're honest with yourself, you're sitting here and you're listening to take up the whole armor of God, our battle is not in flesh and blood, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, and there's all of these like calls to almost take up all that God has given to us for spiritual battle, and you're thinking, great, isn't there enough holy war talk in the world right now? Like, I'm kind of sick of this. Is, is this also what we believe too? This holy war talk, all this, hasn't this gotten us into enough trouble? Maybe you're there and you're thinking that. Isn't what, enough of all this evil spirits, devil kind of stuff, and like, this is just superstitious. This is just weird. Our real problems aren't solved by taking up the sword of the spirit. Our, you're thinking our real problems are they're psychological, they're relational, they're economical, they're geopolitical, right? All this talk of spiritual forces and heavenly realms, you're like, maybe the Bible, the people that wrote the Bible were just, they're too simplistic and they kind of take any problem that arises and just, just attach spirituality to it. And, and, uh, and you kind of think, this maybe really isn't for us. This doesn't really apply to me today. Well, church, I want to plead with you this morning and remind you, and remind you and I, especially in the culture in which we live in, the context in which we live in, we live in a very polished area. We live in an area that, uh, uh, that if we're not careful, we just chase one physical thing to the next We want to acquire the next thing. We want to get to the next thing. I want to plead with you to hear the words of Paul this morning, that these are not antiquated. These are not old-fashioned words. These are not outdated. But this letter to us in God's word is here to remind us and remind our hearts that our struggle is not a physical one, that that next thing that we just want, 
or that next mountain that we're going to climb isn't going to solve all that we think it's going to solve for us, that our battles are actually spiritual ones. So Paul is reminding us. He's concluding this whole letter. He's talked about very practical things. He's talked about marriage and church relationships and parenting and, and, and employee-employer relationships. He's concluding this. He's saying, now, in light of all that, remember, our battles are spiritual ones. What really matters is the spiritual one. It's not just physical. It's not just sociological. It's not just geopolitical. But all the things that we really deal with, like depression, loneliness, all sin, temptation, all those things we struggle with find their roots in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. And so this passage is timeless. It's not just outdated or old-fashioned. It's ageless because humanity has not changed. Humanity has not changed. Our spiritual needs have not changed. They're just the same as the day that Paul penned these letters. And they're given to us in the word of God on purpose. The evil one that Paul talks about is still active, as active as he was in the garden at the very, very beginning. And we're going to get into a little bit of that here this morning. Believers in Ephesus, believers in the Woodlands, believers in Montgomery, believers in Magnolia, believers in Tomball, believers in Conroe, wherever you find yourselves, we have the same need for Christ and his mighty power today, right now. This is for us. This is for us. This is a beautiful conclusion of all that Paul has addressed thus far in his letter. The armor of God, this idea, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not like he just springs it on us. Paul has been alluding to these things throughout the entire text, throughout the entire letter. Here's some ideas that he's, that he's previously talked about, which we've, if you've been with us, we've gone through. He talks about divine power, chapters 1 and 3. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, he talked about. He talks about Christ's victory over darkness, over sin, over temptation, over sexual immorality, right? Chapters 4 and 5. Paul addresses virtues that we are to have, the realities of how we live our lives that are connected with the gospel realities in our lives. And so Paul, all these things with the armor of God, Paul's talked about these. He's talked about truth. He's talked about righteousness. He's talked about peace. He's talked about the gospel. He's talked about the word of God. He's talked about salvation. He's talked about faith. And he's coming back with this idea of putting on the armor of God because he's addressed this idea of putting on something else before in the book, in chapter 4, that we should put on our new self, that we should put on Christ in our salvation, that we're to be imitators of God, right? Says Now he says, put on the armor of God, just like I've been talking about, that you would put on Christ. The armor given to us is God's own armor. A lot of times we kind of have this, like the felt board like, kind of image where it's like, I've got to like take it out of my closet or what if God didn't, what if he forgot to give me a piece or what if I forget to put it on? It's, this is God's armor and in your salvation, chapter one, Ephesians, he gives it all to you. All of it. You're not missing a piece of it. You can't forget it. All of it is given to you. It's God's own armor. So church, the armor of God that Paul is talking about here is the very same armor that God put on Messiah himself. This is Jesus's. It means that we're identified with him. 
It means that it's in him we find our strength and we display his character in living out what he's just called us to do. He's the Lord and we are now in him, right? We're in Christ. He's not just with us. He's not our co-pilot. He is, we are in him. We have God's armor. We put it on. We're in him. We're surrounded by him. We're clothed with Christ and his armor. Now, there's offensive postures, as Paul's going to talk about this, right? To fight back darkness. So it's not, this isn't a passage of fleeing. This is, a, this is sort of, there's a lot of offensive posture, right? That we are, to, we are to be people of truth and righteousness and virtue and holiness. And we have the sword of the gospel of truth that we go forth into dark places and shine bright the light of the goodness of Jesus. So there's some offensive posture. And there's also defensive stuff, knowing our enemy's real in the spiritual places. He's out to get us. And so there's places that we need help and protection from that on our own that we cannot be protected from outside of his help. So we have offensive and defensive language here in his letter, in this last section. And so how do we stand strong in spiritual warfare? This is what Paul is going to address for us. How do we stand strong? We're going to work through three things, all right? First, we've got to be aware of the battle. We have to be aware of it. A lot of us, we just, we don't even want to be aware of it. I watched a movie one time. It stuck with me. I saw it when I was an unbeliever, and it always stuck with me, this one line. I won't tell you which movie it is because I wouldn't recommend that you watch it. But he says, the greatest trick the devil ever played or ever pulled is to make you think he doesn't exist. I was like, ooh, that's a good line. And it made all the much more sense when I became a believer. A lot, a lot of us don't even want to think, oh, pff, this just doesn't matter. It does, that's not real. So we need to be aware of the battle, Paul's going to tell us in verses 10 and 13. Second, we need to be equipped for the battle. Verses 14 through 17, he's going to give us things that we need. And third, Paul is going to tell us to be devoted to prayer in the battle, during the battle. So a lot of battle language here. All right, But this is how we stand firm against the enemy's attacks, and this is how we advance the gospel in the midst of opposition. Because make no mistake, there is a lot of opposition around us. Whether we're in the polished bubble of the woodlands or you're in the dark places around the globe, there is opposition against the work of God and the power of the gospel. And the enemy does not want it to advance. So be aware of the battle. So we need the Lord's strength. So Paul begins this way. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Verse 10. So we've got to be strengthened by the mighty power of the Lord so that we don't crumble when the evil one tempts us. So this is, sort of, this is like passive language. It says, it's like be made strong in the Lord. So Paul's reminding us, don't look for false places to find your strength. He's saying, finally, after all this that I've just talked about, finally be strong in the Lord, in his strength. This is the strength we need. It's not be strong in your own resources and your abilities in your giftings. It's not uh, be strong because you've been a Christian for a really long time. You're not stronger because uh, you've just been filling a pew for longer. It's not what he's saying. It's not be strong because you know a lot about the Bible, although having the word of God in your brain can help you live out the call, right? It's not just a knowledge thing. It's not be strong because you've been attending church a long time. He's saying our strength is in the Lord and Jesus Christ. And it's in his mighty power, not mine and not yours. 
This is a hard truth. I don't know about you, but my struggle is to rely on my own strength and my plans and what I think. And then if it doesn't work out, then we say, Lord, can you please sort out the mess that I've just made, right? He's saying, no, start here. It's his power and strength we need. Go to him first. Go to him first. This is how Paul is concluding this amazing letter. Look to him for your strength. Be strengthened in the Lord. Don't you need that this morning? I need that this morning. Paul says this repeatedly in the New Testament. This language comes up all the time, kind of reminding us it's not your own. You can't muster this up on your own. You can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps and achieve the power you need in this life to endure and be faithful with what Christ has called us to. Second Timothy says this one, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Same language. Be strong in the power of the Lord. Be strong in the grace that Jesus gives you. This is good news for a weary person like me. That his strength is what I need. Our strength is found in the mighty power of God. Who raised Jesus from the dead. Remember chapter 1? That same strength. The same strength that rose Jesus from the dead. He now gives to you and I. So that strength is ours, and because we have this power now, because we have this strength that God gives to us, we can now, Paul's going to remind us, resist the enemy's influence, the devil's influence, right? You can really do, like James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you, the scripture says. That's incredible. You can resist the devil by the strength of Jesus that he gives to you, and the devil will flee from you. Secondly, we need to know our enemy. Verses 11 and 13. Who is this enemy? This this one that's called the devil or Diablo, right? Satan, the Hebrew word means that he's often referred to, means adversary. Right? The Greek term is Diabolos. That means that word means slanderer. He's a slanderer. He opposes you. He's an adversary of yours. He accuses, he manipulates, he is a distorter of truth. Uh, the enemy throughout the Old Testament, New Testament has a lot of different names. Uh, Satan is called the devil only in the New Testament, interestingly enough. Uh, Matthew 4, 13, 25, Revelation 12, to name a few places. He's also called in the Old Testament and New Testament the serpent, showed up in the garden. Beelzebul, the ruler of the world, that's a scary one. God of this age, it's an even scarier one. The evil one and the dragon. Whoa. And all of these names serve a purpose. They describe what the evil one does. They describe his mission. That he's wicked, that the enemy is powerful, that he's cunning. Scripture tells us that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Yikes. And he schemes against us. Here in our text here, the devil is a schemer. He plans this stuff out. It's like, whoa. All right, here's a few things that Paul is going to address in Ephesians 6. He's evil, so we need armor. Why is Paul using this battle language? Why is he using this armor language? Because our enemy the one, is one who opposes God. He's evil. We just said he's strategic. He's a schemer, right? 
He tells us to be aware of the devil's schemes. He's subtle. He's subversive. He's devious. This is what he does. This is what it means that he's a schemer. He makes sin look good. He makes sin look more desirable than God himself. And he knows our weaknesses. He schemes. He, he, to use an old high school football analogy when I, where I grew up, he's watched film on you. He knows the gaps in our lives, right? And so he schemes. And he plans. And he says things like this. God doesn't really know what's best here. You should just do what's right in your eyes. God really didn't say that. So you don't have to worry about that, right? He schemes, just like in the garden. Did God really say that? That's been working on us for a long, long time, hasn't it? He knows our weaknesses. Chapter 4 gives us some examples. If you have maybe forgotten, you want to go back. Remember, Paul picks up the same language from chapter 4, even when he's talking about our anger, uncontrolled anger, that the devil, that the tempter, the deceiver, can even get a foothold in our anger. When he says things like this, don't let the sun go down on your anger so that you do not give the devil a foothold. Interesting. Right? So Paul's picking back up on this idea. of Chapter 4, he talks about other places that can be a foothold or a stumbling block for us in the Christian life. That This is where he opposes us. Falsehood, that we would believe false things about God, about ourselves. Stealing, unwholesome talk, sexual immorality. This whole, look, that's not hurting anyone kind of idea. The devil's scheming against you. And Paul says these were all former ways of life. That's who you used to be. But God has saved you. God has rescued you. God has given you something new. His spirit, his grace, his salvation. Satan wants to make sin look attractive and desirable more so than truth and righteousness. That's the business he's in especially around here. And if he can get us to chase it, if he can get us to even believe he's not even real, we'll chase it all the more harder. He camouflages evil. Temptation, the word that James uses when talking about temptation is actually a fishing analogy. So if you've ever gone fishing, I went fishing uh, with Scott actually just a few days ago. Uh, We caught nothing. No, we caught two fish. Yeah, we caught two fish. But you put a lure on, he was using his fly rod. I was just using my uh, Doc Demon. It was about this big from like $1.99 Walmart. Zing! You just throw the worm out there. But the whole idea is you just, you just try to tempt that fish into thinking that thing's real. And you use that line and lure and you, I don't even know if I'm doing it right. I'm not a very good fisherman. Caught one fish. But you tempt them out. You lure them out from where they're, where they're safe and they bite and they think they're going to get a great meal and it's a hook on the end. Zzz! And he just reels you in. This is the idea. It's that type of language. If you're using a fly rod, it doesn't make that noise. It's a cooler sound, and you're like, it's a more pure way, of course. Um, and then he writes this. This is interesting. We, don't, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Anyone grown up used to watch fake wrestling? Confession session? Three of y'all will get this analogy. Yeah, okay. I used to watch my brother, and I used to love it. WWF. 
It's called something different now. It was before the faction split off and all that happened. So it was like Hogan, Macho Man, Randy Savage, Jim Hagsaw Duggan, the guy that hold, had two by four. There was a guy that carried a python. It was like you would watch these guys and they'd have these elaborate like wrestling matches, right? And it was all orchestrated and planned perfectly. Uh, Andre the Giant. I mean, these, this was... This was awesome back then, right? So Saturday morning, my brother and I would wake up. We would eat, like, uh, cookie crisp and, uh, hunt, like, whatever sugar cereal there was. I can't believe they used to have cereal that literally was cookies, and we thought it was okay to eat, but that's what we would eat, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And then we would recreate the battle scenes using, like, our parents' bed, and it, inevitably one of us would just get really injured. That's how it always happened, right? So theirs was fake and planned. Ours turned real, and we would always hurt each other. But we loved it. It would always escalate into violence. They were fake. Ours turned into real tears almost every single time. But we loved it, right? So Paul is using this, this. This is the only time this word appears in the New Testament. This idea of wrestling or grappling. And it's the same word for wrestling. Greco-Roman real wrestling, not the fake wrestling that I used to watch. Um, but he's using this to give us a clear picture of how our enemy operates. Meaning it's like in your face. It's right here. He knows where to shoot the gaps. He knows how to bring you down. It's not this idea of the enemies over here. Oh, this is wobbly. Jeez, Dylan, how do you stand over here? And it's not like he takes a rock and just goes, oh, I hope that hits him. Oh, man. It's not that. It's not like lobbing things over in hopes that it might stumble us or trip us up. It's this idea of intense grappling right there with the, the, the person, the people, right? It's strategy. It's intense. It's, it's, it's right in your face. The enemy is up close. The enemy for us is in our living room, in our bedroom, in the kitchen. He's there. He knows. He's, it's face to face. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This is amazing. Now, the, the fact that Paul can say that, catch this. Right? We can jump to application real easily for our own world. But this is, the Apostle Paul's writing this. At the end of this letter, he says, for which I'm in chains. The gospel, help me preach the gospel, for which I'm in chains. Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Remember the Apostle Paul, what he's been through? You're like, Paul, what are you talking about? You could write a whole letter on our battle being against flesh and blood. You're like living proof of it. They're opposing your very flesh and blood seemingly at every moment. Paul, you've been beaten with rods, scripture tells us. You've been imprisoned. You've been left for dead. You've been hunted down. You've been shipwrecked. You've been bitten by a poisonous snake. You've been endangered countless times over and over and over again. And he ends this letter to this church, this church. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's different. Those, that's not really where our fight is. It's not really where our fight is. It's not just physical. It's the unseen places. It's another battle. It's cosmic. It's spiritual. That's the battle we're wrapped up in. And he's pleading with this church because I'm sure like us, they struggle. They're like, what? I'm just trying to make ends meet. I'm trying to provide for my family. I'm trying to like do an honorable job in my work. I'm trying to figure out this thing called marriage. I'm trying to figure out this thing called parenting. I'm trying to live and operate in the world that I find myself in. What do you mean it's not about flesh and blood? And Paul says, remember, 
It's unseen. It's bigger than you think. It's, it's different than you think. Don't just get trapped in what you can see. Our wrestle in this world is a product of something that's unseen. The Apostle Paul is trying to get us to understand. <clears throat> but the good news is, for the believer in the room, is that our enemy is defeated. That's the great news. Uh, we have confidence because Jesus has already won the victory for us, right? That's our great hope. We're fighting a defeated enemy. We know that. We know the end of the story. So we're fighting a defeated enemy. Though he still has some dominion in this in-between season we find ourselves in. And so listen to this, church. We aren't urged to win. This is not a call to arms to win a battle. This is a call to stand firm in the midst of one. This is a call to stand firm with what he has given us in the midst of the battle that we currently... It's not go win, Jesus already won. So we stand in his victory. We stand in his freedom. We stand in his redemption. And because of him, we're able to stand firm in the midst of a defeated enemy trying to sweep our legs out. Uh, think about this. You ever at the end of a football game, a very tense game, at the very, it's like the end of the wire. Tensions are raging. Tensions are high too. Um, opposing teams, they face each other in a game. And the game ends. They didn't catch the Hail Mary to get, or they missed the field goal. A lot of times this happens. Like a fight breaks out at the very end of the, at the, end of the game, right? Because these people are furious they lost the battle. They lost the game. Right? It's that extra, one extra push at the end, and then it breaks out into all-out, like, rushing the stands. Because a defeated enemy is often the most vicious. They're really upset because they can't do anything about it. The outcome has been secured, but they're still mad. And they want to take as many final jabs as they can on their way out. This is the enemy that we face. He knows he's defeated. Um... But that's not going to stop him from being as vicious as he can be with the time that he's allotted. Messiah has won. Our enemy has been defeated. And coincidentally, this, when we, when we understand this, it's the armor of the Messiah that we put on. He's an, it's an armor of a victor. So we fight and we stand firm with confidence because Christ will ultimately put all things under his feet. So this is how we deal with even the small battles in our life, that we know that our greatest battle has been won. That's good news for us. This is how we deal with the small battles in our life. This is how we deal with the everyday stuff. This is how we deal with the things that trip us up because we understand that our greatest battle has been won and has been victorious because of Jesus. Sin and death and the grave are conquered. Messiah has won. And all other battles are flea bites in comparison to that one. All right, secondly, we need to be equipped. Here's the armor of God part, right? We could spend weeks on this. I could bring up Josh and put him in a suit of armor, and we could point out each kind of thing as we go, which would have been really fun, but I decided against that. Um, but the most important things to recognize as we fly through this last section is this, is it's the armor of God. It's not our armor. It's his that's pretty profound, right? This is the armor the Messiah wears into battle is now our battle gear. 
So there's no reason to yield one inch to the enemy, to Satan. Right? If we have the full armor of God, we have all the gear of Christ at our disposal and we never take it off because he gives it to us. So what is the gear? The belt of truth, 14. This is the part, if you were going to study a Roman soldier, which Paul is drawing an illusion from this, an illustration from this, this is the part that holds the whole thing together. It holds the top piece, the bottom piece. It holds everything together. It's the belt of truth. We are a people of truth. That's what holds us together, the truth of God. We are a, a people that love truth. We are a people that speak the truth. And where do we find the truth? Right here. God has given it to us. It's not up to us. It's not up to our own opinions. It's not up to our own whims. God has given us the truth in his word. And so it is that that binds us together. If that's not there, the rest of the suit is unbearable and unruly, and we fall down and we're ineffective. The belt of truth holds us together. Satan is a liar, but we have the belt of truth. Coming to Jesus is a coming to the truth, the truth of God. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Love the truth, church. Know the truth. It's important. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. Right? It covers our chest. It protects against the assaults of arrows. It, it protects against the blows of the enemy. And Paul's language is drawn, a lot of this is drawn out of Old Testament language from Isaiah. This would be a great word study, the armor of God and the armor that Isaiah prophesied about a Messiah to come one day. Where he says this in Isaiah 59, where God puts on the breastplate of righteousness. That same righteousness, that same thing God now gives to us because of Christ. We are to put on the virtues of the Messiah. I don't believe this is talking about imputed righteousness and salvation. I believe this is talking on putting on virtues of righteousness as God's people in the world today. All right? So I believe this is talking about we stand for justice. We stand for, for, for purity. We stand for holiness. We stand on the principles of the truths of God and his kingdom. And we run toward those things. And we advocate for these things. And we don't retreat back into darkness like we once did in our former ways of life. But we stand on the virtues of the righteousness of our great Messiah. And so we put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's our new identity. We live in that. Next, the shoes. Excuse me, the shoes. The shoes of the gospel of peace, right? He says, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Shoes are really important. We've got shoes for everything. My daughter, uh, and I think many girls today uh, are not here. One, because it's Memorial Day, and two, because Bonnie has like 18,000 little girls dancing at the pavilion right now for her end of the year recital, which is where we were for like 12 hours yesterday. So I got a nice tan. Um, and it's going all day today. If you were to wear cowboy boots as a ballerina, you would fail. Shoes are important. They serve a function and they serve a purpose, right? We have ballet shoes. We got bowling shoes. We got swimming flippers. They all serve a distinct purpose. And if you aren't wearing the right application of shoes, you will fail in your desired thing you're wanting to do, right? You don't wear cement boots when you go scuba diving. That's right. It's like this is important. In fact, the Roman army, many, uh, many historians believe that the reason the Romans were so successful is largely due to the shoes that they wore. They gave them really great shoes so they could march for ages and ages and ages and they could climb. They had toe spikes and they could actually climb and get to places where the enemy thought they were safe and they could root them out. And so Paul is saying, put on the readiness of the shoes of the gospel of peace that can go any place, 
that you can take it to every nook and cranny, every dark place that the gospel of peace is going to go forth for you and I. He says, and be ready. Be ready. And this is amazing. Catch this, church. In the midst of a passage of warfare, right? And many of you think, great, holy war stuff. Can't we have enough of this? This is the message of the believer. He says, you are to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. When you go forth, you don't bring adherence to the law or death ensues. You bring the peace of the life-transforming good news of Jesus. We bring life when we go forth as God's people. We bring peace. In the midst of war, in the midst of violence, in the midst of a world of deceit, in the midst of the world of despair, God's people put on the shoes of peace that go forth in dark places and shine the light of the good news of Jesus. And we're a part of that. That's not just for pastors. That's not just for missionaries. That's for each and every one of us. We put those shoes on. So whether you work in a cubicle, whether you drive a truck, whether you teach a school full of children, whether you stay at home with children, whether you, whatever it is you do, uh, those are the shoes we put on every day. Next, shield of faith. Paul, uh, the word here is not like that, not like a little small shield. It's one of those massive, like cover everything type shields. All right? And so this shield protects us from the darts of the enemy. And so the flaming arrows would be dipped in some tar or pitch and they'd send them flying. And so often Roman soldiers would dip their shields in water and get them wet. So when it hit it, it would extinguish arrows. This is the language Paul's drawing on, right? And so when the enemy fires these darts at you, darts of doubt, darts of despair, darts of depression, darts of accusation, darts of unbelief, of lust, of fear, God has given you a tool to defend against it. And it extinguishes those arrows. It's the shield of faith. It's the faith that covers the promises of God that extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. So when those darts are coming your way, you cling and you remember and you hold on to the promises that he's given to us. And they help you extinguish those. Helmet of salvation. Um, this is important. It's, this would have been this big, huge helmet, right? And oftentimes, the enemy wants to get inside our head and whisper, uh, seeds of doubt. You're not who you say you are. You're a phony. You're a fraud. Give it up. Right? And he says, your helmet of salvation gives you assurance that you're God's child. Because the enemy often wants to get into our mind, infect our conscience, affect our mind, plant seeds of doubt, plant seeds of depression, plant seeds of despair. And God says, you put on the helmet of salvation and, and you know and you're assured you're a child of God. And you can say things like this to the enemy when those seeds of doubt come in. You can say, I'm saved from sin's penalty because of Christ. I'm being saved from sin's power because of Christ. And I will one day be saved from sin's presence because of Christ. We know that. That's ours. We're alive in Christ. We're forgiven. So we put on the helmet so we don't let the enemy get into our mind. Sword of the Spirit. Final piece of equipment is an offensive weapon. The believer takes this up to engage the enemy. The sword of the Spirit. 
right? Paul identifies it with the word of God, a term which Paul often signifies as the gospel, the good news of Jesus, Christ's death, Christ's triumphant victory over death, and Christ's rule and reign in heaven today, the gospel of Jesus, that which he's done now saved us, right? And so normally, though, when he's talking about the gospel, he uses the word logos. Here, he uses the word rhema, which means the spoken word, the spoken gospel. That's why it's offensive. That's why it's a sword. A sword is someone in battle. You'd go in. So he doesn't use this idea of the gospel in that which Jesus has accomplished, though he has accomplished much. He uses the word rhema, the spoken gospel that goes forth. And we use that as the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the spoken gospel going forth. And we can speak the gospel, the truth into dark places. And that's what pushes back the enemy. That's what brings light to that which is dark. We can speak the gospel in realms of darkness to those that are held captive by the evil one that they may go free. The rhema, the spoken word of truth, sword of the spirit that goes out into dark places. And it's not our word. It's not our wishful thinking. It's his truth. Rhema, the gospel of grace, the truth of God, sword of the spirit. And finally, he wraps all this up and he says, in the same sentence, he doesn't give a piece of equipment for this. He says, be devoted to prayer. In all of this, in the Christian life, in the spiritual realm, in the unseen world, all these things that we've been given, the armor of the Messiah, he says, now be devoted to prayer. Praying at all times. So prayer is wrapped up in a, um, as Paul gives it to us, in the spiritual unseen realities. And so prayer is not a going to God asking for more comforts of home in your present circumstances. Prayer is is praying and asking, in this analogy, our commanding officer, give me help in my time of need. Help me stand firm, Lord Jesus. Help me put on all that you've given me. Help me believe that which you've told about me. Help me stand firm when the attacks come at me. Help me believe in the truth. Help me speak the gospel into dark places. And then he says, goes on and tells us more about how we're to pray. We're gonna pray at all times. We're gonna pray for each other. Pray for our brothers and sisters. Paul says that we pray that he would have opportunity to speak boldly, so we're going to pray that we would have opportunity to speak boldly the gospel of peace into dark places as well. And finally, he ends with this. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. And he closes with a statement about our personal relationship with Christ, our love for Christ, his love for us. And it's his love given to us is incorruptible. Meaning, it'll never rot. It will never go away. No one can take it from you. It can't be stolen from you. It's incorruptible. And so church, this morning, as Paul concluded, I'm gonna conclude here, do you love him? Do you know this love? Do you know this incorruptible love? Do you have the armor of the Messiah that he wants to give to you? Do you have a perspective that our battle is not just in flesh and blood, but it's of the unseen? And he calls us to something greater. He calls us to something more. And he calls us to fasten all the things that he's called us to so that we may go forth and speak light into darkness. That we can even speak light into darkness when we're believing darkness. 
that each other collectively as a church, we can speak the gospel of peace when we're all, when we might be struggling and lift one another up out of it because we have a love with him that is incorruptible. It's undying and will go on into eternity. It can't be taken. So what I want to do to end our time this morning is uh, I want to take the Lord's Supper. And I want us to take the Lord's Supper and uh, in, in, in the scriptures tell us to remember Christ in taking it. So we remember his body and we remember his blood given to us. And so I want us to remember in, in light of this that his body is given to us on the cross so that we could have his armor to fight that which we can never fight. So when you come and you take the bread, remember as you're taking it, you're putting on Christ in the great armor that he's given to us to resist the evil schemes. You're taking on that which he has purchased for us as a victor. And when you take of the cup and you dip it in the cup, the blood of the new covenant, that it's his assurance, it's his spilt blood that gives us the assurance and the power that we so desperately need in these times that we find ourselves in today. And so I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, we're going to have some folks up front uh, serving the Lord's Supper, and you come as you're ready as we sing our last song. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you that, Lord, it is not outdated, it is not antiquated, but it's timeless, and it gives us just tremendous hope. Thank you that we don't have to muster it up on our own. Thank you that you... God, have purchased that which we could not purchase and get on our own. But you've given us so much. We can put on the very armor of God. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be strong in the strength of the Lord, not in our own. Give us comfort knowing that our enemy is defeated, that we stand in the, in the victor of our Messiah, and that one day, one day when you tie a bow in it all, we can lay down our arms and we can be in the comfort and forever peace of our Lord Jesus, a gospel of peace, a God of peace, a God of comfort, a God of hope and of love. May we be those people today in the places we find ourselves in Christ's name.